Well, today we're back in Proverbs chapter 18. I think last week we saw one of the one of the key all-time principles that really fits into Christianity, especially in the Laodicean church age. You know, Proverbs is so so relevant to where we live at today. You know, most people don't understand that history changes, the styles change, clothes change. Once they drove chariots, now they drive cars, you know. Once they walked, now they flew. Once they had clipper ships, now they got ocean liners and all that stuff. But one thing that never changes down through history is human nature. Human nature has always been the same for the last 6,000 years. This is why the Bible is so relevant. This is why, in particular, the book of Proverbs is so important. And we have taken our time coming through the book of Proverbs simply because uh, it's just a goldmine of things that uh, you'll be able to use uh, in, in your life. And last week, we looked at verse 19, just as a, just as a refresher as we move into the next section today. Uh, we looked at the f- aspect of a brother being offended, how hard uh, that person is to win, to win back over. And I gave you, you know, the Bible says it's harder than a strong city with bars. And we talked about all the, all the aspects of that. I gave you one of the greatest verses in all the Bible, simply on what loving the Word of God and making the Word of God the number one thing in your life will do for you and help you in dealing with life in general, not taking things personal, getting to the point where, you know, you realize that uh, in life, certainly in the ministry, in dealing with people. Not everything always goes the way you would want it to go. Psalms 119, verse 165. Great peace have they that love thy law, nothing shall offend them. What a great principle that is. And you know, I thought about this a lot last week. And it it really, that verse and what I said last week, I just want to kind of add this to it uh, to, to complete the thought on it. But I thought about it a lot last week. You know, in a worldly sense, rich people really fear nobody. I mean, rich people have enough money to buy themselves out of anything. If uh, they get in trouble with the law, they can, you know, they can get the million-dollar lawyer and usually can get uh, around whatever they're, whatever they're facing. If, if, you, uh, if you go up against one of them and uh, you have a lawsuit with them or you, they sue you or whatever, um, they, they have more money than you have. They'll run up your legal fees to $200,000 before you know what happened. And they'll break you financially that you just can't compete with them. They'll spend $100,000 like you spend $100. And it just doesn't matter to them. And, of course, there's no way to survive when you're broke and they're rich. They just outspend you. And that is so true. You see it happen all the time. And in, 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 our, in our verse last week on never getting offended by anybody, I, I, I thought, think of it the same way, only in a biblical sense. You don't, may not have a lot of money financially, but you have the riches and glory in Christ Jesus in your Bible. Those principles are worth a billion dollars in gold bullion, every one of them. You have the unsearchable riches of the Word of God. Your Bible is likened to gold. It's likened to silver. It's like at the precious stones. It's a king's ransom. And God gave it to you and he gave it to me. You are richer than anybody on this earth in a spiritual sense if you have and you believe the Bible. And when it comes to the poor spiritually who struggle with things, who want to cause problems or want to come to the point where they, they're insecure and they get offended about everything, you just fall back on the riches that God has given you. It's your money in the bank. <clears throat> 
it's what you have that you don't have to fear anything or anybody. As long as you're doing what God wants you to do and you're loving that book and that book is everything in your life, you have absolutely nothing to fear. You have got, they have absolutely nothing spiritually and you have absolutely everything spiritually. And what you do when you see things or you have to deal with things or you have to face things. And in most cases, they would knock you down or, 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 or hurt you or uh, offend you in the, in the concept of the verse. It doesn't do that because you just simply... You just simply have the peace and the security of the riches in Christ Jesus that you have. And it, it, things don't bother you. Just like a rich guy, he's not afraid of somebody out here who's going to sue him. He just laughs at him. When somebody does something that, that uh, you, you don't like or you don't approve, just laugh at it. Fall back on what you have with God. Because what you have with God is everything. And it'll carry you through everything. Now today... Let's look. We're going to close this chapter out today. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 18, verse 20 and 24. We're going, to, we're going to look at five more great principles. We'll probably break these principles down, you know, in a, uh, and get some more out of them. But there's five fundamental ones here. Let's read it. A man's belly shall be satisfied with the fruit of his mouth, and with the increase of his lips shall he be filled. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. They that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing, and obtaineth favor of the Lord. The poor uses entreaties, but the rich answereth roughly. A man that hath friend must show himself friendly, and there is a friend that sticketh closer uh, than a brother. Dr. Rob, would you stand up wherever you're at and ask God blessing on the service this morning? Let's look at verse 20. A man's belly shall be satisfied with the fruit of his mouth, and with the increase of his lips shall he be filled. Now this is a great verse, and it's a great principle for for every one of us today. And I think it goes without saying that the three basic goals uh, in a person's life, whether they're saved or whether they're lost, I've been around people most of my life, saved people, lost people. I've talked with them through every struggle that they go through in life, the the things that uh, their defeats in life, the things that they, disappointments in life. And I think it's safe to say that uh, across the board, a man has three basic desires or three basic needs that he, he struggles to get in life today. And they would be to, first of all, that he wants to be complete. He wants to understand who he is. He wants to be accepted. He wants to be successful. The second thing is he wants to be content. He wants to be satisfied in life. Life can be so unsatisfying so many times. Life can be so uh, disconnected so many times. Life can be a, a, a series of events that just, uh, it seems like that every turn of life, there's something else that you have to deal with. I understand. He wants to be complete. He wants to be accepted with the people around him. He wants to be successful in what he does. He wants to be content. He wants to be satisfied in life. He doesn't want to go through life uh, in misery of not having the necessity of life. But you know what? There's nothing wrong with having some of the wants of life, too. We all want them. And then the third thing, he wants to be happy. He wants to enjoy life. You realize that those three things 
And I'm going to talk about them here for a moment. You realize that those three things are only found in a relationship with Jesus Christ? I know you know that. Those three things are only found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. The world can never give you those things. The world will give you the fake things that you think will make you happy, that you think will make you complete, that you think will make you content. But at the end of life, you find out that it has deceived you and it's simply not true. The only people that can have those three things in their life are God's people. And I need to say this to you. Most of God's people do not have them. God's people today are the most miserable people on this planet. They had to have the joy of their salvation. They had to have everything that they have in God. They had to realize the gold mine they have in that Bible. They had to realize everything that God has given them. And they had to live above every circumstance in life and certainly not take anything personal or get offended by much in life. But you know what? These three things can only come from a relationship with God or the three things that God's people don't have today. And it's an, it's an incredible concept. And the reason that the Word of God can never do that, uh, uh, the wor- excuse me, the world can never do that, because when God made us, God made us as His creation. God made man differently than any other thing that He created. When He made the angels, He made them a body, and He made them a spirit, but He never gave them a soul. When He made the animals, He gave them a body, He gave them a spirit, but He never gave them a soul. When God made man, the Bible says that God made man out of the dust of the ground, there's his body, breathing his life, breathing his nostrils, the breath of life, there's his spirit, and man became a living soul. He's three parts. And God gave a soul to man and to man only simply because it was that soul that God gave to man that God knew he wanted to communicate with God and fellowship with man through. He knew he couldn't do it through his spirit, he couldn't do it through his flesh. So he had to give man the ability to fellowship and relate with God through a something that he gave only man. And an unsaved man, we know how it works. His body and his soul are stuck together. And his spirit is over here. So he's only two parts. We also know in the Bible that a number three is the number of completion in the Bible. So when a man gets saved... When he really gets complete spiritually, God comes down and separates the soul from the flesh, illuminates his spirit, seals his soul, and now man is complete. He has a body, he has a soul, and he has a spirit. Where he was dead in trespasses of sin, now he has the ability to be alive under the things of God. It's just that simple. And, and when, God, when a man gets saved, he now has that ability to build a relationship with God in those three areas. Because he's now complete spiritually. And when you understand that you're complete spiritually, here it comes. Now you have the ability to be complete in everything else in life. Now you have the ability to be content. Now you have the ability to be happy. And it's those three things that, uh, uh, that man is desired to look for that an unsaved man can never have. Only a Christian can have it. But unfortunately, most of God's people never have it. I watch God's people, and I understand it's the Laodicean church age. I understand that when you, we've talked about it many, many times. When you lose your Bible, you lose some things. And we are certainly in a church age with pastors and churches who simply have lost their way and lost the Bible, and God's people are miserable because of it. I get that. But I want you to say that you'll never be happy and complete or content without putting three things in your life. 
And I want to show you how these three things work in your life today. These three things will have to be in your life. The verse says a man's belly. We know from our past studies that that's a man's emotional stability or instability. We've talked about that before. It says a man's belly shall be satisfied with the fruit of his mouth and with the increase of his lips shall he be filled. Three things you've got to have. Obviously, you could probably guess most of them. You probably could guess the first one. The first one has to be the Word of God. You've got to have the Word of God in your life. You cannot exist as a child of God and build any relationship with God without you spending time in your Bible. And you know what? When people get out of fellowship with God, when people start to go down that road that they're going to leave God, leave the church, leave everything that they once knew, you know the first thing that goes in their life? The Bible. The Bible's gone. They quit reading it. They quit loving it. Hey, I've seen people that at one time in their life loved the Bible in an incredible way and got to a point in their life where the Bible meant nothing to them. The second thing you've got to have is you've got to have ministry to the Lord. Now, I quantified that by saying ministry to the Lord because when we think of ministry, we just think of going out and doing something for the Lord. But if you go over to Acts chapter 13 and you read it very carefully, chapter 1 and 2, when you go to Acts chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, in the church of Antioch, which is the model church, it talks about the men that are there, and that's a very good study themselves. It talks about the men that were there, and then it says this. It says that they ministered unto the Lord. There's a difference between ministering and just ministering unto the Lord. There's a vast difference in the Bible. There's a vast difference of just going out and doing something. Going here or going here, doing everything that, that we, we call as ministry. There's a difference between that and what the Bible says. True biblical ministry is that you minister to the Lord. In other words, your real Bible-based ministry to whatever you do has to run through him first. And you have to understand what he wants for you to be able to do that. Oh, we use the concept and the phrases so cheaply today. We talk about salvation and it means nothing to us. We talk about dedication and the Bible and it means nothing to us. We talk about ministry and we think that ministry is just something that we do. Well, many times, probably in most Christians' life, it is. But a real biblical-based concept of ministry based on the Word of God will always be ministering to the Lord. And I want to tell you something. You'll never be complete. You'll never be happy. You'll never be content. Until you fit into the Word of God and then you learn how to minister unto the Lord. And the third thing that you got to have in your life? People. Most churches today, and I grew up in them, most churches today think that, that you can minister to the inanimate objects. That you can minister to this. You can, the ministry is people. God saved you for three things. He saved you to give you the Bible, for you to minister unto Him, and then to match you up with people that you could take the Word of God and give them by the fruit of your mouth, by the increase of your lips, and give people what they need. You don't have those three things in your life, you're going to be miserable. You will go through everything in life as a Christian. You will go to church after church after church. You'll get into choir. You'll get into this. You'll do that. You'll, you'll sign up for everything that's there. But you'll never, never, never have those three things in your life till you put the other three things in your life. Only reason God saves you. 
Only reason God saves you was to give you the word of God that you may minister to him. And then invest your life with people. The ministry is people. You know, I watch you, many of you. All of you are simply at your best when these three areas are working in your life. You're at your peak. You're at your best. You have your game on. The three median, these are the three main ingredients of a working relationship with Christ. These are the three things that God saved you for that make you everything that you need to be in Him. And let me tell you something. There, I'm going to be, you, and I show many of you know this is true. There is no greater feeling or experience than what you get when you sit down with that book and God gives you something out of it, just you and Him. There is no greater anything on this life. There is no greater in anything that you do. Nothing greater than sitting down and opening up that book, this you and God, and God gives you something that he just gives to you. I mean, what? Six billion people on the planet? A bunch of them saved? They're all in their Bibles? They're all praying in all different languages? And yet God puts them all over here and gives you what you want. I'm telling you, nothing greater than that. Nothing like it. And along with that, there's nothing that will compare or nothing that will complete you more in your life than knowing that you're totally involved in the work that God has called you to do. There'll nothing be more satisfy you that you realize that as a child of God, oh, I know you got your career. I know you got your job. I know you got all kinds of things you do. I get that. That's part of life. But your main function in life is to realize why God saved you. And you can look you God in the eye today and you say, Lord, I'm giving you everything I can the way I need to do it. You'll never get out of fellowship with these three areas in your life. In the work and the ministry, people come and people go. But I've never seen anybody get out of fellowship with God that had these three areas working in their life. It's the greatest insurance program that you'll ever find. And I'll tell you something else. There's no greater contentment in all the world than allowing God to use you to give the Bible to somebody else. There is nothing better than that. We have what we call the people ministry. You know, over the years of being in the ministry, seeing every mistake that every pastor probably made, making most of them myself, Trial and error, dealing with people, getting your tail feathers shot off, getting your rear end burned, getting, getting all the lessons of life that you learn in 40 plus years of, in the ministry. After a while, you begin to see what works and what doesn't work. You begin to understand better, <clears throat> and there's always a method to what you do. You may do something that everybody else looks at it completely one way. You see it completely from another aspect simply because... You know what you're trying to do with it because you've learned through the years. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a very unorthodox pastor. I'm not your norm. I, I don't look at things the same way that most of them do. I don't do things the same. I don't believe the things that most of them believe. I, I, I'm, I'm as far from the mold as you could ever find. And I want to stay that way. <clears throat> and I've realized over the years that that you look at things and you do things for specific reasons. We talk about the people ministry. 
And I, four or five years ago or three or four years ago, whenever it was, we started that and allowed anybody to get in it. And my plan, my, my plan behind it, there's always a method to my madness. There's always a reason why I do what I do. I do very little spontaneous based on when it comes to ministry. I usually think it through for a long time. I put all the pieces in order. And when I do something, I'm going to get every drop of something out of it I can for the Lord, for the church, for the ministry, for you, and for what we try to do here. And my plan was to get you involved in these three areas. And it worked for so many of you. And you know what? I'm going to tell you something. It changed your life. It changed who you are. It changed your goals in life. It changed your desires in life. It changed your passion in life. It changed your perspective in life. It changed your direction in life. I've watched you pour yourself into people. I watched you with discipleship one. I watched some of you do discipleship two. I watched some of you work in the marriage se- section of things with me, and you work with people. We got two couples that are going all the way up to Atchison, Kansas today. Is it Atchison? And to work with a couple up there, that, they, that couple could not believe that anybody, any church would drive an hour and a half one way just to sit in their living room and try to help them. But you see, when you get infected with people, when you get infected with ministering to the Lord, when you get infected with the Word of God, it changes everything about you. The teams going up to Lincoln. Who would drive three hours, get no sleep, stay up half the night, Got to go to work, then come back for church the next day, and then go to... Who would do that other than somebody that is infected? Last week I gave you the verse in Psalms 119, verse 165, nothing shall offend them. How could it? How could anything offend me or you when you got this thing working in your life that it's transformed you into what you are today? You want to define completeness? Completeness is understanding who you are in Christ. You want to be complete in Christ? You do that by understanding who you are in Christ Jesus. You realize how he looks at you. You realize what he sees when he sees you. You don't look at yourself through the failures of your past life. Everybody's got a history, folks. Everybody's made mistakes. So many of God's people can never get the confidence that they need with Christ because they're always looking at where they have been. You need to look at where you're at now and how God sees you. We all could go back in our history and literally defeat ourselves every day. You want to be complete in Christ? Get to understand who you are in Christ. You want contentment? Realize being satisfied with what God has given you. Understand it. Everything in your life you have, God has given you. Everything that you have, every dollar in your wallet, every car in your garage, everything in your home, every piece of furniture, everything you have, God gave you because he, he saved you for a purpose. And my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You're content with that. That doesn't mean you don't want things. I mean, that's why they build shopping malls, so you can go out there and walk around and see what you don't have. <laughs> I make jokes about the women going to the cosmetic counter and there's 600 pairs of different lipsticks in there, you know? You ain't got that many lips, but there it is. 
I think that's okay. I think I, God knew what a woman needed, and a woman likes to pamper herself. She likes to she likes to look at those things. I mean, a guy, you know, he looks at a fishing rod, he buys it, you know, and he's ready to go. Woman, she'll look at all those colors. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's the way God made her. And God, God, it's not a sin to have 600 colors of lipstick. But it is a sin to put those 600 colors over what God's called you to do. It's like it is a fishing rod or anything else. I've known guys that bought a boat and you ever seen them in church ever again. The one I was thinking about was the Titanic. Some of those guys never got back to church. <coughs> You want to be happy? You want to have real happiness? And I know the word happy, happy, happiness is building on the happenings of life. The Bible's word for it is joy. I get that. But you want to have the real happiness of life? Get the joy of the Lord. Amen. The happiness of the world can change in a heartbeat. You can be happy in the morning and at 1230 get one phone call and the rest of your day is a disaster. But that will never happen when your whole world is built on the joy of the Lord. That it all comes from your mouth. It all comes from you fulfilling what God saved you for. The bearing of fruit of what you do and what you say to people. And then it just keeps getting better. You see, you get into the Word of God. You get into ministering unto the Lord. And you get in with people. What you say to them is the fruit that God begins to multiply. And it only gets better from there because the more you say, and the Bible says, and of the increase of your lips... And I can say this with 100% certainty, after 40 plus years in the ministry, nobody ever got out of fellowship and walked away from God or church or whatever without failing in these three areas first. You know what goes? The book goes first, ministry goes second, people goes third, and you're out the door. It's just that simple. It's not complicated. In a few moments, I'm going to give you anatomy of a backslidden Christian, in case you ever want to be one. You know what to look for. You'll notice, when I put somebody to disciple somebody, here again, methods of my madness. When I put somebody to disciple somebody, say I'm going to put you to disciple somebody, or you to disciple somebody, or Bob to disciple somebody, or I put somebody that's a, an oldie but a goodie to disciple somebody, I always put one or two younger ones with them. Maybe one, sometimes two, never more than two. That young person will meet with you guys. I think I did that with you guys, didn't I? Who did I put you with? No, no, who did I put you with that you learned? Oh, Courtney. Courtney? Yeah, that's because that other girl was sick that morning. I couldn't get her. I had to get a question. Who did I put you with? Will. Will. Well, yeah, yeah Will. Okay. <laughs> but that's what I do. See? Now, why do I do that? I mean, it's just as easy to have, have somebody will to disciple somebody or somebody else to disciple somebody. and just put. But I put younger people with them. You know why? Because I want that older Christian to get them infected. I want you to tantalize the ministry to the Lord and teaching people the Bible. I want you to tantalize it in front of them. I want you to give them an easy lesson and let them do it. I want them to see there every week how that person is changing, that person is growing. I want it to infect every aspect of their life so when they get past that, they'll say, I want to do that too. Because without the Word of God in your life and ministering unto the Lord in your life and people in your life, you have no reason to be here. My goal is to get you to the place where you can take somebody yourself because the ministry is people. 
My job, the job of this church, is to provide you with the tools, create the opportunities for you to realize and reach those three goals in your life, that you get the Word of God in your life, the ministry under the Lord in your life, and you invest your life with people which will in turn bring you around by the increase of your lips and your mouth to the completeness, the contentment, and the happiness that you're all looking for in life. And you'll never find it any other way. And as always, God's people, hey, some will and some won't. Some will and some won't. It's just that simple. You know, when you get out of fellowship with God, the first thing that goes is the Bible. You know that to be true. Your attitude changes about the Bible. Right now, sometimes I preach hard sermons. Right now, I preach sermons sometimes that uh, they'll step on your toes. That's a pastor's job is to do that. You know, when you're in fellowship with God, you, you like that? You're sick, but you like that. The Bible says the full soul loatheth the honeycomb. But the guy that loves the honeycomb, even the bitter things are sweet. You know why? Because you know, you know deep down inside that the only thing that keeps you straight is sometimes banging your head up against the wall or running somebody through the wall back there. <laughs> the anatomy of a backslidden Christian. Not complicated. Out of fellowship people, here's how you first slide them. Out of fellowship people will never enjoy anything negative out of the Bible. Negative people will not like negative things about the Bible. I get it. People who are in fellowship with God will enjoy negative things about the Bible. It's just how it works. It's not complicated. Did you ever look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16? It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Let's see what it's profitable for. Watch this. First one is doctrine. That's positive. What's the next thing? Reproof. That's negative. What's the next thing? For correction and righteous, uh, uh, correction, uh, for correction. That's negative. What's the fourth one? Instruction and righteousness. That's positive. That Bible's built on a negative, positive impact. You have to take it all. If you just get positive stuff all the time, you're going to be the absolute most miserable people in your world. You know why? Because positive don't get down in your deep little dark world where you're hiding things. Positive doesn't get down and when everybody's telling you how wonderful you are, how great you are. No, no. You've got to have the balance. You've got to have the doctrine, but you've got to have the reproof. And a child of God who loves God, loves that book, he loves them both. He loves them both. I've had some of you come in here on Sunday morning and walk by me and give me a hug and you simply say, give it to me today. I really need it. And you're not asking for $5. (laughs) Nothing like, nothing will tell where a Christian is at. I'm telling you, 45 years of experience. Nothing will be telling more telling and where a child of God is at, where you're at with God is how well you like getting your hide tore off. Even the bitter things are sweet. You know why? Because you know you need it. You know when you don't want negative and you just want positive, you know why? Because you don't need it anymore, you think. The human nature and human man is the most incredible thing on the planet. It's just so easy to read when you map it out over the Word of God. And I'm telling you, some people want it, some people don't. 
Some people come to the place that they fall such in love with the word of God. They know how miserable they really are. They know that they need the negative to keep them straight. And they know if you told your kids, put it in your own world. If you never disciplined your kids and had any negative experiences with your kids, and you just told them when they broke something or did this, that they're the most wonderful person in the world, and you didn't hold them accountable, you didn't deal with them, what would you have by the time you're 20 years old? You'd have a monster. Oh, you're going to do your kid that way, but the church can't deal with it that way. Greatest sign of the anatomy of a backslidden Christian. First sign you look for. First sign you look for. Look at verse 21, the next verse. <clears throat> Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they that love, love it shall eat the fruit thereof. What if a powerful verse? And it, it goes right along with another verse in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 14. A man shall be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth, and the recompense of a man's hand shall be readied unto him, rendered unto him. The power of the words that we speak and that we use. Our words will either send a man to heaven or will send a man to hell. Our words will either build somebody up or it's going to tear somebody down. Or our words will get us judged out of our own mouth because of our self-righteousness when we make great explanations to God that simply are not true. And there's some great examples of that in the Bible. In Acts chapter 5, verses 5 through 10, Ananias and Sapphira. What they said out of their mouth sealed their doom. Sealed their doom. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Saul. Saul got himself killed because of what he said about I forced myself to make that evening sacrifice. God killed him for it. David got judged out of his own mouth with Bathsheba and Uriah when Nathan went in and he told him this story about, about a, a guy who had a little lamb and this big, strong guy, rich guy, took this guy's little lamb. David was so enraged and incensed not knowing that Nathan was telling a story about what he just did to Uriah by taking his wife. That he jumps up and stomps around and he says, I don't know who this guy is, but he's going to pay fourfold for that life. Old Nathan stuck that bony finger out there in his face and he says, thou art the man. Now you go through the rest of David's life, God held him accountable that, judged him out of his own mouth. He loses his next four boys. Bartimaeus over there in Mark chapter 10 verse 47. He got his lifelong desire of his heart based on what he said. Jesus thou son of David have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped right there and fixed him. Power of the mouth. You go back to Queen Esther back in the book of Esther back there in chapter 7 and 8. She probably saved hundreds of thousands of lives. But what she said to the king in Esther chapter 7 and 8. Jesus said one time in John chapter 6, verse 63, he said, the word that I speak unto you are life. In verse 68, he said, the words of eternal life. The power of what we say. You know, we don't really think about it. I was thinking about this, and this was Pearl Harbor week. All the movies were on for Pearl Harbor. And I was sitting there watching it, and I thought to myself, putting this together, the power of words. 
I mean, Pearl Harbor to December 7 was an absolute disaster for the United States. It almost broke the back of America. And boy, we were down, man. We were in trouble. And you know, the Japanese didn't know what was really going to happen. They expected a real, to be a real, a real fight. But there was no fight. It caught America completely asleep. 21, 2,500 people got killed in that. And all because they're flying in there and they're coming in over Diamond Head and they're coming in from through uh, uh, over uh, uh, the other section, the other side coming in. And uh, they're waiting to see to get the word. Three little words that one man spoke destroyed the fleet, killed over 2,500 people, and put America so far behind that it took her the next year to get back up. Those three little words. One Japanese pilot flying in the lead ship when he flew over and saw that, that there was no aircraft, any aircraft fire, there was no planes in the air, they had got complete supplies. He flipped that little mic switch and three words put an end to the American Navy. Torah, Torah, Torah. Three little words. Three little words. Three little words wiped out the whole fleet. Three little words. 2,500 people killed. Three little words. Battleships upside down. Men trapped in there and can't get out. You know what? For two or three weeks after that battle with those ships capsized, they could hear men tapping down there. When they finally cut their way down, some of those guys had lived down there for two and a half weeks before they ran out of air. Three little words. Power words. We read stories like that. Don't even think about that, do we? I think about the, the Enola Gay, the B-29 that dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima. You know, they had prepped for that and tried it. They didn't even know if it would work. They didn't even know if it would kill everybody in the plane. And, you know, they're flying out there that morning. Colonel Paul Tibbetts was the pilot. And he's flying over there, you know, when he get over Hiroshima. And that, that thing in there, and he turns that thing over to the bombardier. Down there is that city early in the morning. 275,000 people in that city. Just waking up. That plane so high you couldn't even see it, couldn't hear it. That old bombardier looked down to that bomb site and found his target area. She had two words. Bombs away. And then 30 seconds later, 225,000 people stepped onto eternity. Power in words. Power in words. You're discipling somebody right now. What you say to them could make all the difference whether they make it or they don't. You're going through somebody in marital counseling and working with them and helping them. Let me tell you something. How you say what you say. It's not many times what you say. It's as important as how you say it. Power of words. When you tell somebody the story of Christ, it can give them life. When you don't, it tears and tear down the ministry and the Lord's work. You can give them death. The power of what we say, Job chapter 26, verse 4, the sixth question God's going to ask the judgment seat of Christ. What of them was to whom hast thou uttered words? Words are so powerful. Look at verse 22. Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor of the Lord. Amen. <laughs> Must be his anniversary. <coughs> Now, the standard teaching is talking about a man who finds himself a good spouse, i.e. a wife. We've got that. Genesis chapter 2, verse 20 talks about when God made Adam, 
he had a job for Adam to do. And uh, Adam couldn't get the job done by himself. God had created all the other animals by that time. And God looking down through the zoo that he made. And he says, there isn't anybody there that can meet up Adam with what he needs. So God created a woman out of Adam. And where all the animals have help, our animals have mates, M-A-T-E. Over there in Genesis chapter uh, uh, 2, verse 20, you get a different word for the woman that God gave the man. It was a help meet, M-E-E-T. Animals have mates. Men have meats. Because God had a plan for Adam, and he knew that he needed somebody to help them meet the need to fulfill that plan. Now, within the text here, we know that um, this is Solomon and his virtuous woman that he found in Proverbs 31 and wrote about in the Song of Solomon. Inspirationally, we know that's when a man finds a good wife and she becomes a good helpmeet to him. We know that. But doctrinally, it's a little more than that. Doctrinally, it would be Israel to God in the Old Testament as God's wife. In the New Testament, it would be Christ, the church. In the New Testament, Christ's bride. You see, in the Old Testament, God had a nation of Israel, kingdom of heaven. And he had a plan, and he had something that he wanted the nation of Israel to accomplish. And he took on the fashion that the nation of Israel was his wife, because God knew that to get the job done, he needed a helpmeet. And the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was God's helpmeet to get God's plan to the Gentile world. And you know what she did? She stepped out on him, committed adultery on him, fornicated on him, and left him. And now she's got a bill of divorcement. Hosea. In the New Testament, it's you and me. The body of Christ, the church. You and I today, if you're saved, God has a plan for the Gentiles today. Completely different than the plan from the Old Testament. But God has a plan. And where the nation of Israel was God's wife to be his helpmeet to get it done, in the New Testament, you and me, the body of Christ, is Christ's helpmeet, the bride of Christ, to accomplish the plan that God wants to get done through his son. You're his helpmeet. Now, let me ask you a question. You know what? Questions like this are what you ask yourself. Once you see the reality of something like that, ask yourself this question. What kind of helpmeet are you? What kind of helpmeet are you to him? Are you the kind of wife that when you got married to him, you just want everything for yourself? Are you the kind of, are you the kind of wife that when you, when you got salvation, you didn't really care about what your husband wanted? Proverbs chapter 31 talks about all the virtues of the virtuous woman. They ought to be you and me in the church. Now, when you hear something like this and you read something like this and you see how it applies to you and me, the body of Christ, you ought to ask yourself the question, what kind of help me that I am to Christ? I, you know, it's kind of ludicrous for me to even say this, but it's true. It, say, it seems so weird to say this, but it's true. He needs you. You wouldn't think God would need anybody, do you? He obviously needed somebody to fellowship with. That's why I put this whole plan together. Christ needs you. You know what he needs you for? Because he can't do what his plan is without you. It simply isn't going to happen. You've got people at work that are going to die and go to hell if you don't be a good helpmeet. You've got people in your family going to die and go to hell if you don't try to do everything you can do to be a helpmeet. You don't put those three things in your life and allow God to put the Word of God in your life, the minister unto the Lord in your life, and people in your life. That's, that's what He saved you for. That's your plan. And I get it. 
Some of you have, some of you have extenuating circumstances. Some of you have the worst world. Hey, you know what? There's always something you can do. God, people complain so many times about all they got to do that they can't do anything for God instead of looking what they could do, then they get everything done. What kind of help meet are we? When you get up in the morning and look in the mirror and you know your day's going to start for the Lord Jesus Christ, not for yourself, that ought to be the first thing you ask yourself. What kind of help meet am I going to be for him today? He goes, he has something he wants me to do. Is his plan for me today even remotely in the ballpark of my plan today? Boy, that's the difference. That's the difference. That's the difference. Well, let's look at verse 23. <clears throat> the poor uses entreaties, but the rich answers roughly. Now, this is a good principle on life. You see, the poor has to plead and beg, like in 2 Samuel 14, there, 4 through 12, somewhere in there, because he, he or she has nothing. They don't have anything. They don't have any advantage in anything. They don't have any bargaining power. Uh, they have to entreat the help of others. And the word entreat means to ask urgently because you have a real need in your life. You entreat somebody. When poor people get in a jam, they need somebody to help. Uh, they're on their own. They don't have anything to fall back on. So they're always looking for somebody that has something to help them out. But the rich, on the other hand, he has everything he needs, and he needs nothing. And, of course, the model for this in the Bible, in, the, in a spiritual application, would be the lady to see in church, Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, where it says, I am rich, I'm increased with goods, I have need of nothing. Yet the Bible says they don't know that they're retrograde, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The church has a false concept of itself today. Most Christians do, too. Most Christians think they're spiritual when they have no clue what real true biblical spirituality is. Most people think they have a Bible when they have no clue what a real Bible really is all about. Most people think they have a relationship with God when they have no clue what a real biblical relationship with God is. And that's the problem we find today. That's the problem we face today. The rich man, he's the man of 1811. His wealth is in his strong city and his, his high walls. Not in the Bible that he believes and he holds, cherishes but rather in his own conceit. And here again, the Bible's filled with guys like this. You got the rich guy, Pharaoh. You got the poor guy, Israel, in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh treated them roughly, treated them terrible, because he was in power. They had nothing. Anything they had, they had to entreat and beg to get. Over there in 1 Samuel chapter 25, you find Nabal speaking roughly to David. And treating him terrible. Up through the New Testament at the first time of coming of Christ, the Roman Empire is the most powerful empire in the world. They treat the Jews like slaves. They treat them like, like dirt. They put them under their heel. They, they persecute them terribly. When you go back even before that, when God ended the times, uh, or they began the times of the Gentiles, and the Babylon comes down, and, and Syria comes down, and, and takes the nation of Israel captive. Uh, it's a terrible time. And Babylon and Assyria are great, powerful nations, and the Jews have nothing. You see it in Luke chapter 16 with the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is laying at the gate of the rich man's place, and he, he can't even afford a box of Band-Aids. He's got sores all over his body. He can't get any ibuprofen. He can't get any drugs. He can't get to a doctor. He doesn't have anything. The dogs come and lick his sores. The rich man fares sumptuously every day. 
And that's a great picture of the world because as we read that, we think that Lazarus is poor and a rich man is rich. When you put it into context, Lazarus was a rich one and a rich man was the poor one. But the world don't look at it that way. Now look at verse 24. Another great verse. This one's on, on par with Psalm 119, verse 165. It's a powerful principle. And it leaves nothing to the imagination. You need no Greek or no Hebrew to get anything out of this one. It's plain, clear, and simple. Look at verse 24. A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. And there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. All my life, I've dealt with God's people. And I understand it. This is certainly not a criticism. I understand it. People are lonely. All my life I've heard people say, well, you know what, I, I, just don't, I just don't fit in here. And all my life I've heard them say, well, you know, I don't have any friends. And, and I, I, I understand. I get it. I get it. And I realize that uh, those are real things in a person's life. It's just like somebody getting offended like we talked about last week. Hey, I realize. I'm not minimizing that. I'm really not. I've dealt with people all my ministry that they came in and talked to me and said, I, I just don't, I, you know, I don't seem to have any friends. And I just can't seem to fit in. And, you know, and I, 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 I help them. I tell them. But I, I always give them the Bible what it says. And I always tell them, you know, because the verse kills you. I mean, the verse just kills you. I mean, it just does. It's a great reality check, man. You know, the Bibles will always show you where the problems are in life. I mean, we all come in and we all say, well, I got this or this or that. You know what? This is why people leave the Bible when they get out of fellowship with God. Because the Bible will always be clear, basic, and simple. Tell you what the problem is and tell you how to fix it if you want to fix it. Now the verse kills us. It says, a man that hath friends must show himself to be friendly. A while back I gave you six or seven things that I've learned in 66 years of life on planet Earth. And, um, you know, I, 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 I use them and they're great things to me. And one of them, I can't remember what it was, but one of them, either number three or number four, it simply said this. One of the things I've learned in 66 years of my life is simply this. You only get out of something what you're willing to put into it. Amen. And that is so true. You know, if you, you have a job, you get a brand new job, job that you wanted. You know what's going to determine how far you go up the ladder of promotions and success and raises? It's going to be what you put in it, not what you take out of it. You get up, everybody else comes in five minutes late, you come in five minutes early. Everybody else says, well, I'm too busy to do this. You say, I'm not too busy, I'll help you. I've got my load, I'll do this too. You show people that you're interested. You show people that, hey, I love this job. I got this job. I, I really, really are going to take care of this job. And you can count on me in this job and then show them that. You only get out of something what you're willing to put into it. You find a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You go out on a date someplace for the first time and he doesn't speak to you and you don't speak to him. How far is it going to go? <laughs> Drive around town all night. You say, where would you like to eat? Oh, I don't care. I don't care either. <laughs> Drive an hour later. Hungry yet? <laughs> you cannot build a relationship in any way, shape, or form without putting something into it. You have to be the one who puts it in. You see the beautiful girl over there that you just want to ask out? 
You don't stand over here in the corner and say, I hope she asks me, I hope she comes over and talks to me, I hope she... No, you don't do that. She's never going to come that way. She may walk towards you and you think, oh, here she comes. She's going to walk right by you and go to the ladies' room. <laughs> if you want her, you know what you got to do? You got to go say, hey, Bob Alexander's my name. It's good to meet you here. What was your name again? Maddie. Maddie? Yeah. Maddie, that's a nice name, Maddie. Good. I'm glad you come here often. I mean, that's how you got to get into it. <laughs> you got to be, you got to be a facilitator. It ain't going to happen by itself. It just isn't. When you get out there and you're going to play sports, you know, I, I don't care. I, I'm never in it to win. Winning has never been important to me. It's how you hard you play when you're in there. And I don't care whether I win or I lose. That's not, but I'll tell you what I do care about. Guys who don't really give it their all. You know what? If a ball comes your way and it's within 10 feet of you, I want you in the grass and turf in your teeth when you come up. You may have never got the ball, but you were down there looking for it. That's what I want. I, and I get so mad at myself when I do something stupid. But I knew better. And I've watched people out there that play ball. And I know, nobody's a great... But you know, the ball's overhead and the guy, I've seen it. And I don't say anything. I just turn around on the pitcher's mound. And I just have a little talk with Jesus. The ball is over his head. He throws his glove up. Like the glove is going to catch the ball. Run back on it. Run up on it. Don't stand there and flip your glove up in the air. You only get out of something what you're willing to put into it. In sports, you've got to put some stuff in it. You'll be sitting on the bench all your life. You've got to show them that you're into this thing and this is what you want. And the only way to get something as you want is to put something into it. Listen, when it comes to church on Sunday, and you being here this morning, and I don't know why you're here. I, I give you all the benefit of the doubt. I think you're all here for the right reason, probably, most of you. But listen, when you come on Sunday morning, you should have two basic goals that you're geared up, lined up, and ready to go for. You know what they are? The first one ought to be what God has for you. That will be the first and foremost thing that you are. You have to have a 55-gallon drum to fill up with everything that God's going to give you. The second thing you ought to be your goal in life is how you're going to inject yourself into what God is doing here. There's always a method to my madness. We have prayer groups. Those prayer groups change every 12 weeks. That's so if you're somebody new, you can get to meet people. You're not locked into the same old crowd over and over and over again. In the elementary, most churches, they have standard elementary people that they just work at every Sunday. I don't want that. No, I want your kids to know everybody in this church. I want them to know everybody in here. I want you to know them. And so you're rotating in and out and you do what you do because that's the way we need to do it. It's just that simple. I mean, uh, uh, the activities that we have, they're, they're designed, they're designed, they are designed for you to get everything that you want with people. They're designed that way. The youth meetings, the last night, the progressive dinner that you all went to, going from place to place to place. You just meet people, talk with people, and you just have a good time when you put yourself into it. 
New Year's Eve. Going to be another deal. We have a knockdown drag out, a great time. You come here, have a great time. Let God speak to you. Let the people that are going to give testimony speak to you. If you want to give a testimony, that's great. And you know what? You go out of here filled up because of the fact that you put something in it. You're never going to get nothing out of it if you don't put something in it. I hear people all the time after we play volleyball and after we play softball, we always go to Jason's Deli. And I hear people say all the time, uh, what? I really don't want to go out and eat afterwards. You know what? You're not going out to eat afterwards. Get it out of your brain. You're going out because that's where the people congregate and meet, and if there's somebody new there, you ought to be all over them. The fact that you don't want to eat, buy somebody else's food. I don't care. You're there because of the fact that this is where you can put something in. There's times that you need to look for that you need to look in, and I'm going to inject myself into this. I'm going to put myself into this circumstance. You only get out of something what you're willing to put in it. Get to know your brothers and sisters. We're a family. Somebody says, well, I didn't get invited to so-and-so. Invite yourself. I do. Amen. You think somebody's going to tell you no in this church? I've had things that I didn't get invited to that I really wanted to go to. And I go up and I say, hey, do you mind if I come? I just like to come hang out. Oh, we'd love to have you. We didn't think you'd want to come. Well, if you've got food, I'm going to be there. <laughs> what are we having, by the way? Nobody cares here. This is the weirdest church in the world. It is so unorthodox from what churches are supposed to be. Somebody has a birthday party, you didn't get invited? Hey. I'm sure you just missed my name on the list. Is it okay if I come? I do it. I've never had nobody tell me, though. If they say, well, no, you say, well, Bob told me to ask. Then you'll get in for sure, I guarantee you. I mean, I want to tell you something. Now, listen, let me say that. There are some churches, and I give you this. There are some churches that you could never break into. You could go there for 20 years of your life and you never get on the inside. I'm telling you, they're out there. I've had my share of them. I'm telling you. There's churches out there that you can go and you can go to everything and they'll never allow you on the inside. But not here. You kidding me? I, 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 sometimes I, over the years, you know, I, I know my ministry and I know me. And I, you know, I'm a lot like my dad. My dad never met a stranger. My dad was friends with everybody. I call everybody buddy. Even the girls. Hey, buddy, how are you doing? That was my dad. He called everybody buddy. I got that from him. My biggest lab, his name is Buddy. I mean, I, I mean my dad, and I, and I got a lot of those traits. And I, and I, I don't ever met a stranger. My, my kid, we go off to someplace. I will, I will, we, were at, we were at Disney World, and there's so many foreigners at Disney World. They're all from all over the world. I'm going up saying, welcome to America. Good to have you here. My family's going nuts. They're saying, what are you doing? And I said, I'm just being nice. I, 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 go, I see them over there and I'll get in line and I'll say, hey, are you, where are you from? Ah, oh, China. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, you're from Korea. Yeah, 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 yeah. My uncle killed a lot of you guys over there in the Korean War. <laughs> Don't say that. But... You just, it's okay. You know what? When you got the joy, joy down in your heart, you want to tell everybody about it. 
You never know what you're going to find out. Just be nice to them. I mean, I could, I, 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 I'll tell you another one. I, I was driving someplace where I was going, and I was going down past Gary Potter's place on uh, Bannister, past the uh, 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 Bannister Road there, on, uh, and, and a guy was blocking traffic, and he had a big trailer, a large trailer on a pickup truck. He pulled down, and he's got a driveway. It's a normal driveway. He pulled down, and he backs this sucker up and in, and I mean, he puts it right in there like it was just born there. Everybody else is honking their horns. I wound out my window and rode up there, and I said, Ah, oh, a job you did parking that sucker. <laughs> He looked at me and he smiled and he said, I've done it a few times. And I said, I am impressed. <laughs> you know, when you're saved and you get your head out of wherever it's at, you know you can be in control of most situations with people. You know you have the power of words to disarm some situation or shut it off. I mean, come on. I mean, it's just that simple. I mean, I get it. There's some churches that you can't break into. But boy, somebody to say here, well, I just can't find any friends, you know, and I just, uh, I, uh, I mean, that's, to me, that's just, there's a fundamental problem here. And I'll tell you, come on and see me. I'm the greatest facilitator of putting you in any place you want to go in your life. I've had people come in and say, here's my schedule. Here's my time. Here's what I got. What can I do? And I just slide right into a slot for you. Because that's what you have to do. You have to get something out of something. You have to put it in. Well, there, uh, anatomy of an out of fellowship Christian. It drives me crazy. One, you can't you can't find your niche here and be friends with people. And the other one is when people start to get gruntled, Well, I don't get fed there anymore. Let me tell you something. If you can't get fed here, you can't get fed anywhere. And that is no comment on my teaching or my preaching. I'm telling you this. You know why you don't get fed? You ain't showing up for dinner. That's why. I mean, I mean, this is thing. A guy said one time, he says, you know what your Bible studies are like? I said, no. He said, you know what your church servers are like? I said, no, what? He says, it's like trying to get a drink out of an open fire hydrant. <laughs> you ever see a fire hydrant putting out gallons about 900 feet per second? You want to try to get a drink? It'll take your lips off. <laughs> Now, when we talk about friends, I, I, I want you to know that friends will come into two categories. And I think this is very important. For number one, you'll have your garden variety friends, which we all have. There will be people you hang out with, do things with, you know, very well. Uh, you know, you'll do things with them. Your kids will play together. You'll work in ministry together. Maybe at Restart or you'll disciple somebody. You, you'll do whatever. You'll be on their volleyball team or their softball team. You know, you help and work at the few with them, you know, or like I said, on volleyball or softball, maybe in your prayer groups. And they're your friends. There are people who you, you, you count as friends and you love them and, and they love you. You have with them, you know, you have fun with them and you're, you know, at church and with the Bible and God and each other. You're all connected together and you make them friends by opening yourself up and being friendly. Just like the verse says, showing yourself to be friendly. I get it. But then in the course of life, you will have many friends that, that you share and do things with. And that's very important. Everybody needs friends. But that last part of that verse 
And the second kind of friend, it says there, giveth you uh, friendship that is very rare. In life, you'll find very few of these kinds of friends. And they are the rarest and the most precious thing that you'll ever find in life, other than the Word of God and your relationship with Christ. Verse 24 said, There are friends that sticketh closer than a brother. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend leveleth at all time, but a brother's born for adversity. You know, in ministry, it's so very true. People will be your friend today and then not tomorrow. You'll pour your life into people and you'll win them to Christ. You'll marry their kids. You'll bury their moms and dads. You'll do everything and now, and it comes down to it that they get a better deal someplace else or they get the nose better at a joint and you get the short end of the stick. Great peace have they that love thy law and nothing shall offend them. God's people are the most ungrateful people on the planet for the most part. Truman Dollar told me something years and years and years ago. One of the best things he ever told me. And boy, we were driving down to Springfield one time. We were talking about something. And he always gave me a lot of great wisdom. He said one time, he says, Bob, let me tell you something about God's people. God's people will never remember what you did for them yesterday. They're only going to want to know what you're going to do for them today. Boy, I never forgot that. And you accept that as collateral damage in the ministry because that's just the way it is. But the thing that makes the ministry worth it all will be the second kind of friends. Fair-weather friends, you always got them. People who only need you when they're in a jam, they're always there. That's just part of life and part of the ministry. The real blessing in the ministry will never be those people. The real blessing in the ministry will be the ones that stick up close to another brother and a brother that is born for adversity. Those who stick with you and bear the, bear the bonds and, of the ministry with you. You know, to me, the greatest quality in a person will simply be one word. It's the word loyalty. I have a lot of bad faults and I have some decent faults, but I, I'm well aware of probably my greatest, my greatest quality. And I don't mean this in a brad, boastful way, but it's just true. It can be my best thing or my worst thing. My, my number one quality is loyalty. I'll be loyal to a fault. I'll be loyal to somebody right up to the point where he cuts my throat and sticks the knife up, cut my ear, and, and throws me in the ground. That's not a good thing. But loyalty to me is paramount. Now, when I got saved, I found the most loyal person in my life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has been good to me over the years, and God has given me some of the most loyal people who love the Lord, love the book, love the ministry, and love me. And it's an incredible concept. They're the ones that make the ministry work. They're like David's mighty men of valor back there in 2 Samuel chapter 23, where there's a dual loyalty. They knew he was the captain. They knew he was in charge. But when he wanted water over there from that well out of Bethlehem that the Philistines had, and old David comes out and he looks down through there and he sees that and he says, man, that's the best water in the world. I'd love to have, I'd love to have a drink of that water. Well, he walks back in and he says, you guys get a good night's sleep. Keep your eyes open. Those boys were looking at each other and they said, let's go get our captain some water. They snuck down there under the nighttime and got into that Philistine camp, got that water out, and they tripped off the trip wires coming back up and got the whole thing going on, man. They're shooting at them and everything else. And they stumble over that parapet down that trench and there's the captain looking right down at them. And they look up and they say, here, sir, we got the water for you. We love you. You're our leader. You know what he did? He did that because they were loyal to him. You know what he did? He took that water, realized it was the water that he wanted. It was the water that came from the bell of Bethlehem, the house of bread. And he said, I can't drink this. These men put their lives in jeopardy. And he poured it out and gave it to God. You know why? Because it's a dual loyalty.
the dual loyalty. Has to be. Has to be. And boy, when you have that keyword loyalty there, nothing ever gets between you. I mean, a friend loveth at all time, but there are brothers that are born for adversity. And in the ministry, you find them. And they're the ones that make it worth it. I mean, every one of them. Uh, in the course of life, uh, in ministry, you'll find those that uh, God puts in your world, in your life, that will stick with you through everything uh, that you have to face. It's a loyalty and based on what we get in the Word of God together and bind some of us together. Uh, it's, the, it's, it's that old war buddy concept. You know, soldiers come in two categories too. You have the combat vets and you have the guys in the rear with the gear. And the combat vets never get along with the guys in the rear, and the guys in the rear never can identify with the combat vets. But the combat vets have been in the fight and put their life on the line and put your life in the hands of somebody else and his life into yours. It builds a bond. It builds a loyalty. It builds a trust. It's that unconditional love and respect and the ability to work through anything because of the bond that you have as a brother that is born for adversity, not just for the good times. As I said, fair-weather friends are everywhere. All the time. But a brother that is born for adversity. And there's two aspects to that. The first aspect is the ministry. The ministry will have its share of adversities. And the key that's going to pull to keep a ministry together is the bond that, that the brothers have. The ministry. The ministry will have its share of adversity. Paul in his life and ministry went through them uh, and the great examples for us uh, in, to know what to expect. There was adversities of great uh, against uh, against Christianity. There was adversity uh, with the Jews who hated him and tried to kill him. God's people who stuck with him and got him through. You find people like Aquila and Priscilla. You find people like Timothy, like Titus and Philemon and Luke who was with him, a trained physician because of Paul's problems. God will put people in your life that will get your heart and get your mind in ministry and then pick up the load and help you carry it. They understand God in their life. They understand the Bible in their life. They understand the ministry under the Lord in their life. They understand the pastor that God has given them in their life. They understand the adversity that we all have to go through. And they stand together to get it done. And loyally is the bond. Loyally to the Word of God. Loyally to what God has given us. Loyally to understanding who we are. Why we're here. And then forging ourselves as brothers and sisters that are born for adversity. You don't find them very often like that in like life. And when you find them, you better take care of them. Because they'll take care of you. Then the second aspect of adversity. You'll have adversity that you'll all go through personally. Everybody does. Everybody does. People who will be so close to you in Christ that, you, uh, that your issue becomes their issue. There'll be times when you can't stand for yourself that somebody will stand for you. There will be times when you don't have the energy to fight that somebody will stand up and fight for you. Amen. There will be times when you don't have any strength and you're weak and their strength will become your strength and they'll carry you through. You don't find them very often like that. They will be by your side when there's absolutely nothing that they can do. There's nothing they can do to fix your problem. There's nothing they can do to help you. But they'll be by your side that when you're going through the toughest time, you look around and you know they're standing there just waiting for an opportunity. They've got your back. This is the friend that sticketh closer than a brother. In the midst of your conflict, you look around and you see them there. They're like the Lord. They'll never leave you nor forsake you. The loyalty they have for you is not based on 
just friendship. It's based on what you have in the Word of God together. They realize where your heart is. Realize where your passions are. You share those hearts and passions. And they want to be part of that. And they will stand with you no matter what you go through. Because they know at the end of the day, that's what God's people are supposed to do. This is the friend that is born for adversity. This is the friend that when you go through your tough times in life, no battle's too hard. No battle's too long. No battle's too intense. No ever thought of quitting and going back. You stand together. Or you go down together. But you stay together. You may struggle on different levels. But you always find a way. And you meet in the middle. And you hold the line together. Because of what God has given you together. God's people don't have that today. I remember, I told you this story a couple of years ago. I remember reading way back when, back in the, oh, I don't know, it had to be in the early 80s. I, I had a book that talked about encounters in Vietnam with guys that were fighting in the Vietnam War. And it told the story of these two best friends that did everything growing up together. And back in the Vietnam War, they had a buddy system that if you had a friend and you went in to service together, they would keep you through it all the way through, basic and then AIT and then to your final assignment. These two boys wanted to join the Marines together. And they joined the Marines together. And they, they, uh, they, they went through basic together, inseparable. Went through AIT together, inseparable. Got, both got the sent to Vietnam together, got the same rifle company. And uh, they were just friends forever. There was never two guys that were closer that were always there for each other. And uh, I, as I read the story, it talked about how that one night that they were on a nighttime patrol and these two guys were always together because they never wanted to be separated from each other. And something happened in the middle of the night and they got separated. And the rest of the rifle company got positioned and got dug in and the Viet Cong were hitting them all around and there was no way. And they knew they had lost two guys and it was pitch black dark. And they knew that they could not get out and find them without losing a bunch more guys. So everybody in the rifle company hunkered down and all their NCOs said, we're going to find them in the morning. Everybody just get in, dig in, hang tight. We'll get them in the morning. Well, after about two, three hours of silence, they knew that the VC had found them. And over about maybe a quarter of a mile away, maybe a half a mile away, they heard the most horrendous gunfight shootout you ever saw in your life. And you can tell, if you've been in the military, you can tell the difference between an M16 and an AR-47. And they could hear the rat-tat-tat of the M16s and the, and the bangs of the AK-47s, and that thing went on for 30, 40 minutes. And then it fell silent. Everybody in that rifle company knew that those boys were dead. But the Marine Corps have a tradition, as most military guys are not going to leave anybody behind. So that morning at first light, they got in some reinforcements. They went to find them. They knew the general direction where they were. One of the most sobering things you ever saw in your life. They walk into that little ambush spot where those two boys lost their lives. And here they were. And they walked over and both of them were dead. But you know what they had done? Together in life, inseparable. Together in death, inseparable. So one wouldn't run and leave the other one. And one wouldn't let the other one in the lurch. They took their pistol belts and put them together and they strapped themselves back to back and tied themselves together that they could not be separated. And they fought till every last round of ammunition was gone. And then they died together. I read that story and I thought to myself, 
There's two guys who are probably in hell this morning. I would hope not, but probably are. There's two boys that went into the Marine Corps, had such a loyalty to each other and a loyalty to the cause that they were fighting for, that when push comes to shove, instead of running, instead of hiding, instead of panicking and running off in different directions, together in life, together in death, they bound themselves together back to back, and they held the line, and they, they died together. And I thought to myself, if you could get God's people to do that exact same thing in the ministry, if you could get God's people to bind themselves together back to back, have the loyalty, have the commitment that together in life, together in death, whether we stand or we fall, we do it together. If you could get that kind of commitment out of God's people and that kind of loyalty, that kind of brother and sister that is born for adversity, that stick as close unto the brother, you'd win this world to Christ in three or four years. But it'll never happen. So what God does, give you one here, give you one there, give you one here, give you one over here, give you one here, give you one over here. He'll pull them out of the great sea of massive humanity and this old putrefied Laodicean church that everybody just cares about what they want, gets their nose bent out of joint over things that is their issues, God still has his mighty men of valor. You ought to study sometime the difference between Saul's mighty men of valor and David's mighty men of valor. Saul's mighty men of valor are men that he forced to be his mighty men of valor. He had to conscript them to get them there. He had to force them to be his. When it came to David, they were waiting in line to be him. You know why? Saul had no loyalty for his men. David had nothing but loyalty for his men. Loyalty is a big thing, gang. Loyalty in the ministry is everything. It starts with our loyalty to the Word of God. Our loyalty to every, the relationship we have with the Lord Jesus. And then it simply comes down based on that loyalty, our loyalty to each other. Brothers, each and every one of us standing together in these last days. And if you don't know that this, we're not in a shootout, you don't know where we're at. It's you and me helping each other, being there for each other, living above the circumstances, not getting offended about anything, but recognize that our calling is a higher calling. And what it's going to take to get it done is simply in this church, you folks in Lincoln, you folks in Wichita, you folks on the, on the YouTube, it's just simply going to take us binding ourselves together back to back and hold the line till Jesus comes back. We may not survive. We may all get killed. But at least we'll do it together. We'll stand together and we'll die together because that's what brothers that are born for adversity do. And nothing or no one ever comes between us. Nothing or no one ever comes between us. Every head bowed and every eye closed.